Episode 75, The Benefits of Using Apple Products in the Practice of Law, or Try Not to Get Too Geeky with Mac Geek Gab's Dave Hamilton. Our next guest is Dave Hamilton. I met Dave at the 2023 Max.com conference. Dave is a seasoned tech enthusiast, podcaster, and publisher. He has dedicated the past three decades to aiding computer users globally. Known for his insightful advice and valuable product recommendations on the Mac Geek Gab podcast, Dave also enjoys an esteemed reputation as co-founder of the Mac Observer, an acclaimed Apple news site started in 1998 and later acquired successfully in 2021. Beyond his tech-savvy persona, Dave embraces a vibrant life filled with music and family in the New Hampshire seacoast. Enjoy. Have you been enjoying the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast? Consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast feeds. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it. This is great. Dave, I appreciate you being here. And to get things started, tell us, what is your current tech setup? Well, I use three different computers for different reasons. I have M1 Mac Mini in my office connected to two 27-inch displays. I have an M1 Pro Mac Studio up in my podcast studio that is also connected to, well, two 27-inch displays and then one really old, like, 14-inch square display that I use to display logos behind me, but it doesn't really count. And then I have an M2 Air that I use as my laptop, a 13-inch M2 Air. And I really I use every one of them almost every day. I realize I lead a charmed life. I'm very spoiled. I don't need to have three computers. Any one of those computers could do the job that the other right. ones do. But I like having a separate office and podcast studio. That's been really great for me because I can leave the podcast studio as a podcast studio. It really, it's a studio. It's room that's larger than it needs to be for a podcast studio. I have my drum set up here. I have a, I'm a drummer, as you might've figured out by that comment. I also have this room is set up for band rehearsal if I want. There's microphones and amplifiers and all that stuff. And the M1 Pro Mac Studio actually acts as the mixer, not just for the podcast, but for, for band rehearsal and all of that. I use Logic, and it actually works great. And I just output it to speakers in the room if people need to hear or, or what have you. So, yeah, that's the gist of my setup. And then I have an iPhone 15 Pro and an iPad Mini 6. Wait, I thought you got the Pro Max. I did not get the Pro Max. Or was, no. that, just, was that your co-host, Pilot Pete? Pilot Pete ordered the Max. That's right. Yeah, no. <laughs> if they sold me an iPhone 15 Pro Mini, I would get that. <laughs> the smaller the phone, the better for me. So Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. And what I see you have, well, you've got your podcast mic. Which one is that? This is the the Earthworks Ethos microphone. Okay. I do recommend this as a podcast mic. However... It is not a mic I would recommend for podcasting had I not used it. It is a condenser mic, mm -hmm. and condenser mics generally pick up a ton of room noise. Okay. And that's an overgeneralization because obviously this one does not. This one sounds like a broadcast mic because it was engineered to be a broadcast mic. But I would almost always recommend a dynamic microphone like a Heil PR40 or an EVRE20 or something like that for podcasting. Well, you sound great. Thank you. I, I mean, appreciate it. So do you. Well, thank you. I, yeah. I, I use a Shure MV7. Yeah, a, another great mic. Yes. And, and it's yep. fantastic. And I love yep. that. So yours is a plug and play, right? No, this is XLR. It plugs into a Personas Quantum 2626 
audio interface, which is way overkill for podcasting because right. it's got 24, technically 26 channels, but really 24 channels of in and out. But with drums and other instruments and other all of that, it works. But the podcasting takes one channel in. <laughs> so it's overkill. But it's a Thunderbolt interface, so it's it works at low latency. But yeah, no, this is a traditional microphone, not a USB microphone. They said you sound great. And Thanks. I appreciate you being here. And so before we kind of move off, the tech stuff. I had two questions for you, or several questions for you. For number sure. one, your Mac Mini, is that an Intel or is that an M chip? You know, it's an M1 Mac Mini. It is the first gen of okay. the Apple Silicon Mac Minis that I got a number of years ago, and it still serves me quite well. Yeah, yeah. It's so 16, wait, you you 16 Mac... gigs of RAM with two terabyte drive. You said you had a Mac Mini, a Mac Studio. Yep. And one more. Oh, M2 they, uh... MacBook Air. Now, the reason why I was kind of going back there is that at the time of this recording, you and Pilot Pete had just come out. Well, actually, just you, because Pilot Pete wasn't available. Sort of a rehash of what happened on Apple's spooky event. And I hear sort of conflicts about whether or not it was actually something worthwhile. In other words, with the M3 chips that Yes, they are faster in some aspects, but I'm hearing also that they're not as fast in other aspects. Do you have I, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's good as a Mac user and especially as a Mac user who has several decades of life experience. I remember when Apple was the beleaguered company and wouldn't make it. Right. right. And, and that's hard for some people to comprehend if you look at the Apple of today. So for me, anytime Apple is updating the Mac lineup, in a meaningful way, or even perhaps a not so meaningful way, that's good news, right? They are clearly still a company that cares about the Mac. And since I use a Mac, several Macs in my daily life right. and work and all of that, I am super happy for that. As far as the actual, like the M3 versus the M2 versus the M1, could they have called this an M2 supercharged or something? Probably, right. but th like they'd like to keep things simple. And there's enough to this that the M3 moniker is the right name for it. Yeah, and it they've changed, especially the GPUs in them. The graphics processing units mm. also do a lot of the machine learning crunching because they're better at that. They added their dynamic caching to it to be more efficient with how it uses memory. And then they also added some things that are really important for game developers and their right. customers and gamers. So, like, there are things in this chip that are fundamentally different than we have seen in the Apple Silicon so far. So, yeah, I'm okay with them calling it the M3. Benchmarks are starting to come out from them. They are faster. So, like, it's all good. Yeah. In some aspects, they are. In some I've aspects, seen, yeah. I've seen in other aspects that they're not, or they're just about as equal. And I, I bring this up to, for the listener's sake, not because I wanted to get geeky and talk about tech stuff in the sense of which is faster, which is not faster, and what's the new shiny thing, but they need to better understand when should they upgrade, when do they need to buy. And yeah. Macs, Apples, are not cheap but you get a lot of bang for your buck I mean, versus Windows, which you can just buy one, let it die or break it or whatever, and just buy another one without any another issue. One. Yeah. I think Apple answered that question, right? This event was very much, there was a lot of reference to Intel Macs, Macs based on the Intel chips. And it was really clear that Apple was targeting this to people who have Intel Macs who have not yet 
taken the or made the decision to i don't want to even say take a leap because it's not a leap of faith anymore that like the, the apple silicon is very proven and there's a lot of benefits to it especially if you're on a portable device like the, the battery life is just it's hard to understand and right. believe us when we say oh yeah i get 20 hours of battery life out of my laptop people don't believe that when you say it to them it's true but so this was very targeted at those folks and so i think apple is saying in their estimation now is a good time to upgrade and i would agree with them do you need to go m3 i mean if you're gonna if you're the type of person who keeps a computer for five plus years then right. i would always say yes buy the latest tech that you can afford because it's going to last you that much longer but i don't have any m3 max and i just well, i had to and i say the, these words i sort of did we had a weird lightning strike here we are very well protected against lightning in, right. in my house, but we had a strike that hit much closer than one has in a long time. Mm -hmm. And we lost mm -hmm. two computers. I lost the the, the oh. Intel iMac in the studio and the Intel Mac mini that my wife used. And so that's why I have both an M2 Air now and a Mac studio. I bought them within a week of each other. That's not a sustainable pattern for me. <laughs> so, I, but it had to be done. So I'm fine. Like, Seeing that I have a, a two M1 series Max, right? The Mini and the Studio are, are both M1s. I was able to buy an M1 Pro Studio for it used. It, it, I mean, it, it was new out of the box, but it they sold it to me as used <coughs> because of how old it was, and it, which was great. Yeah, and cool. I'm happy with it. Like it's not slow, so it's fine. Buy whatever you can, but get yourself to Apple Silicon if you're a Mac user. You will be happy about this. Uh, great. And I've noticed the speed improvement. One of the things, just to kind of go back on two aspects of what you were talking about is one, I have three computers in the house as well. Okay. And in the office, one is a Mac mini just to serve as a backup. God forbid sure. things go down. I got this running in the background, syncing with everything. It has the basic programs I need yep. and it happens to be Intel. So in my mind, I'm kind of wondering when I need to move from Intel to the silicon chips, because quite frankly, I'm mostly worried about security. This Mac mini is 10 years old. It's running, I forgot what the operating system that it's running, but it's running, it's been running it fine. But I just want to make sure that, because I'm worried about viruses and bad culprits who want to go in and try to maybe steal or corrupt my stuff, just because sure, sure. I have some PII, personal identification information that needs to be protected. And I have a duty as a lawyer under my bar ethics to make sure all that stuff's protected. But I have a MacBook Pro with an M1 Max chip. I think that's okay. the highest you can get in the laptop. It is, yep. And then for my studio, for, my day, for the day job and also for the podcasting, I have an Ultra. I have an M1 Ultra. Oh, wow. And I got that early on because you need know, to talk about, well, getting something that's new and updated, but I also try to get things that are future proof and will also last a long time because I think the M1 Ultra would compare to even the M3 Max, I think it still was beating them out. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Performance wise. And yeah, yeah. that's why I'm not like, I don't have to like buy a new computer every couple of years. Um, yeah. It's good to be able to have one that just works. And I keep misspeaking. I, my Mac studio has an M1 Max in it, that not the. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so why did you not go with the Ultra when you got that, if I can ask? Because I was running fine on Intel for the studio. Like it, okay. everything was great. And okay. so it was like, I just need a new computer up here. 
it really was, do I buy a Mac mini? I was upset that Apple didn't make a 27-inch iMac with Apple Silicon. And after Monday's event, I think that we will, well, there are no plans for us to see that. I'm not going to say never, but they're happy with the 24-inch iMac. I would not be. So it was like, okay, I need to just divest myself of this commitment to iMacs. And I called my local Apple dealer and told him, hey, it's me again. The guy who just bought your M2 Air, I need another computer and I think it's going to be this. And they were like, oh, well, we have the M1 version because the M2s were out at this point. This was just a couple of months ago. Right. And so it was like, oh, yeah, no, that's going to be perfect for me. And I mean, I'm up here doing the most that I do with it. Okay. And we're on video while we're recording this. Obviously, we're not releasing the video, but still crunching video. And my CPUs are at like 30%. So it's fine. Like it's more than powerful enough for a long time for me. And please know I'm not like judging you or no, like, it's a it well, not only is it a valid question for nerds to just ask each other, but I realize the point of this conversation is to help educate your listeners. Right. And so like that's why I'm articulating all of these things, because it, it is helpful to hear how mm-hmm. a self-professed nerd thinks about these things. And even though I understand the latest tech. I don't feel the need for it all the time. Like being on Apple Silicon is good. Like I wasn't terribly, other than the timing of it, I wasn't terribly upset that I had to upgrade the studio from Intel to Apple Silicon. That was, had been sort of a long time coming. I try not to mess with the studio too much because audio gets really finicky, especially with them using external audio devices and all of that. There's a headache factor built into upgrading anything. And I knew I was going to have to live through that. And I did. And now everything's actually kind of fine. In fact, it's better than it has been for a while. But yeah. So you keep mentioning that you have your Apple provider where you buy your Macs and whatnot. Now, is this an Apple store or is this a third party? It's a third party. It's a company called Mac Edge. They have two stores. I live in the state of New Hampshire. They have two stores here and they are an authorized Apple retailer. They're an authorized Apple service provider. And I don't buy all of my Macs from them. A lot of times I will buy refurb direct from Apple. Right. Unless I need something that I can only get brand new, I always buy refurb. And so I reached out to them and said, here's what I'm going to do. I like to buy from them because they help me with things. And so I like to give them money when it makes sense to when I can. And the M2 Air actually is the owner of that store was it was his computer. Like he literally sold it to me used. Because he wanted the 15 inch and I knew the 15 was too big for me. So it's like, great. So. Well, the reason why I ask is because do you have a business account with Apple? I don't. You should. Okay. They're free. Got it. Uh, okay. So first of all, they're free. Second, I is like free. Know, yeah. You know how you get that white glove treatment at Apple? Yeah. I always say that this is white glove on top of white glove. So you can get little discounts. I mean, little. Mind you, yeah, I understand. A, a large one is, is yeah. still better huh. than nothing. All right. And after how much you spend, they'll say, okay, maybe we can give you a little something here. And it's free. So I, Got can, it. I take it, I use <laughs> it, use it all the time. And I notice a small difference. And Interesting. I, I right. enjoy that. Okay. But And is it like this Apple business manager account or is it different than I that? don't think so. What I would do is the next time you're in an Apple store. Yep. Say, hey, I like to open a business account. What do I Got need it. to do? Got it. And you'll get this special like. Oh, yeah. No, it's card. Just, called a, just called a business account. I see it. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay, great. And I... they're great. Great. But, but Dave, know. let's get into the questions. Question number one. After over 1,000 episodes on Mac Geek Gab, 
What are the three most common questions you still get about technology today? Wow, that's a good question. I think the one that we get perhaps most frequently is what's the best way to upgrade to my new Mac or to do that? And we're seeing a lot of that again now. It, it's interesting. Questions on Mac Geek Cab come in waves. And it, sometimes you can look at sort of industry patterns and say, oh, well, Apple just released a bunch of new computers, so that's why people are asking. Or they released a new operating system that end of life, a bunch of computers, and that's why this is happening. But other times, it's just random, but we'll get like 10 listeners in a week just asking about the same topic. And it's like, well, I guess that's what we're going to talk about now. So it, certainly asking about what the best path to upgrade is, how to go about it, how to think about it. And the way that question manifests is often, should I use migration assistant or should I start from scratch with my new computer? Right. And, and that's incorporating your old system yeah. and your backup and your hard drive and your data files onto the new one. It's I want to I got a new piece of hardware and right. I want to keep doing the same thing I was doing with my old hardware with the new one. I just want to do it faster, better, whatever. Do so, I yes. migrate from the old machine to the new machine or do I just download everything fresh and start over again? Exactly. And what's interesting is you talk about upgrade in the world of Apple. You're, you're always upgrading to buying a new computer. Yes. But in Windows, an upgrade can mean, do I just put in a new hard drive? Can I add more RAM? And the problem with Apple products is everything is like so soldered in that you can't do it yourself anymore. I mean, I remember, and I'm sure you remember 10, 15 years ago where you could just replace the hard drive yourself. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. add in oh. more RAM. And you can't do that anymore. No, absolutely. I mean, we like you said, we hit a thousand episodes earlier this year, and we this is our 19th year of doing the show. And so certainly there was probably a decade of doing the show where that sort of thing we had. We talked about upgrading RAM and how best to do that and how to go about it all the time. We talked about the upgrade from not just upgrading your hard drive in terms of size, but upgrading from a spinning hard drive to yep. an SSD. And that, that was a huge deal for a number of years because, again, it, these are these game-changing, speed-multiplying things that you could do and really make a difference with your computer. So the questions are, from a 10,000-foot view, the questions are the same, but it's the specifics of it, you're right, are very different. Now it's, I replaced one silver box with another silver box, and what do I do to make sure it works the way I want it to work? And we'll talk through that, because there is no one right answer for that type of question. It really depends on what you're doing, how long you've kept the old computer. If it's been like 10 years, maybe starting from scratch. I will say this, Migration Assistant for Max is super reliable and super yes. easy, and I use it all the time and don't even think about it, and it just works. It's amazing. However, I've also started from scratch in recent years, and it's not nearly as time-consuming as I always lead myself to believe. It's an afternoon, yep. and I'm done, and yep. then I know that I only have the apps that I'm going to use. I haven't brought over anything wonky, probably. So it's good to do that, I think, once a decade, maybe even once, twice a decade, once every five years. Well, with the speed of the hard drives and the internet, I mean, it's very easy to do. Well, it, yes, that makes it easy, the speed of things, but also the amount of our data that syncs to what I'll just refer to as the cloud, right? right. Because it used to be your data was all on your computer and nowhere else, right? It, it, unless you backed up and most people didn't back up. I still think most people don't back up. The good news is you're less exposed now than you used to be. So, and that's probably the second most common question too. We'll back into that is how should I back up? What should I back up? And 
with all the syncing that happens, even just using Apple's tech, you've got iCloud Drive, where if you store all your documents in your documents folder and you tell it to sync that to all your Macs, it's synced to all your Macs and to your iCloud account. Your email is also more than likely just stored on a server somewhere and your devices are just syncing it down to them. But if you were to log in or if I were to log into a new Mac today and I didn't have any of my backups with me, I would be able to have most of my data, all my email, all my data could be synced to this new computer without me touching my old computers at all. Right. right. Because it, it all exists in a cloud somewhere. Apple's cloud is the easiest one for us Mac users to use because it's fully integrated. But there are other clouds like Dropbox and any email provider. Gmail is a cloud well, in that sense. Apple Cloud, when it comes to syncing files, I understand is still not quite there. It's fine. I have no issue with it. And we don't hear about a lot of issues with iCloud Drive syncing anymore. We did. If you were to right. rewind... No. Eight, 10 years ago. I remember. Ago. I remember. Yeah. It's just that I just, I still hear some concerns with it. And lawyers like myself, we use things like Dropbox or Box, <laughs> just to name a couple. And I still hear issues with Apple Cloud that I'm still not comfortable saying as to any attorney that this is something you should look at. I would agree with that. It, you could use it for your personal files or whatever, mm -hmm. but as soon as it comes to, like, I would not use it for any business in terms of, like, anytime I deal with my attorney, they have files that they create that they want to share with me. Dropbox, Box, they make it super easy to share mm -hmm. with people mm -hmm. who are not in your family, right? Whereas Apple, it's like, well, it's doable, but it's not built for that purpose. So it makes perfect sense to me that you would choose to use a Dropbox or a Box, especially those are like truly cross-platform and more robust, certainly more mature than Apple's. Yeah. One of the things that I also advocate for is for the, I have a backup system belief that it's the three, two, one, that for every device you have two different locations for your backup and three different backups itself. Some people do or do not count uh, Dropbox as a backup I do. I also have Backblaze and then I also have Time Machine. Do you have a philosophy? Do you have a practice that you use that you could share? I do, but I'm an old guy, right? I've been around for a long time. And so I remember when our things weren't synced to the cloud, right? Right. And so not having a backup burned us all at some point, right? Oh, yeah. It wasn't if, it oh, was yeah. when. And so, yeah, I do. I back up the time machine. I also back up, I clone my data partition of my mm -hmm. drive. I use a, a program called Carbon Copy Cloner to clone yep. that. And then I do my documents folders are backed up to are synced to my cloud engine of choice, which happens to be a, a network storage device that I keep in my home, okay. a Synology disk station. And then that is backed up to the cloud. Yep. So yeah, I am backed up. But I'm just not convinced that most people need the 321 system today as much as they did, say, 10 years ago. Because it, like you, I believe that Dropbox is a backup. It's got versions of your files. It's not just like if you delete something locally, it doesn't delete it from Dropbox right away. It, it right. moves it out of the way so that it's not syncing to your other devices. But Dropbox keeps it depending on the type of account you have for somewhere right. between 30 and forever days, right? Right. And they, they'll keep like six different versions of a file. Yeah. And, so and I've used that before. And actually, Of that, course. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. I mean, Version and, syncing is a backup to me. That, yes. But also, quite frankly, I've seen it work better than Time Machine. 
Time Machine I only use because it's simple. Right. I, it's built into the operating system. Although, I will point out that starting last year in Ventura, Time Machine went from Monterey and Prior, which was the, the operating system up until about a year ago. Time Machine had its own system preferences pane. In Ventura and now yeah. in Sonoma, it is buried underneath the general preferences pane. That tells me that Apple is not prioritizing Time Machine because their metrics probably tell them that their users aren't using it. And if everybody's storing everything in iCloud Drive, well, you already have a cloud backup. And if you have two Macs, you also have a local backup because it's syncing to your right. other Mac and you didn't have to do a thing to make that happen. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying the TechSavvyLayer.page podcast as much as I enjoy making them. Consider buying us a cup of coffee or two to help defray some of the production costs. Thanks and enjoy. I wonder if any of this has to do with Time Machine not exactly being perfect. I mean, I've had too many occasions where it's like I'm looking for the file and it like takes forever to get there or somehow the Time Machine device, particularly the hard drive, got corrupted. Yep. And trust me, it, it's failed me too you're many not times. Alone. It, you're not alone. Restoring from it when it works is often the simplest yeah. way to restore data. And that's why I am willing to dedicate a drive to it. And yeah, back up but to I'm it. not willing to dedicate that as the only drive. No, no, sir. And, and I'll go for that, the simple quick fix, ideally. But yeah. there's been too many times where it's like, you've got to be kidding me. Why isn't this there? And now with like Dropbox and version syncing, it's been fantastic. Yeah, it's great. And I, I will say, just as a piece of general advice, whatever backup system you have, even if it's only, and I'm using air quotes because I, I truly think it's legitimate, even if it's only Dropbox, but whatever backup system or systems you have, go and take an hour and practice restoring a file from them today. Mm -hmm. When you're not in panic mode, right. you're not worried about, did I actually lose all my data? You believe you still have all your data. That belief is probably true, but it doesn't matter. It's that you believe it. This is a low emotional stakes endeavor. Go practice and learn how to restore from your backup because the day that you need it, you're going to be thankful that you have at least a working knowledge of that process. That is an excellent idea. And I can guess that a lot of attorneys who should know how to do this, God forbid something happens, will not find the time to actually practice something like that. Because to be blunt, we are so just busy with our work yeah. and running a firm and everything else. And I say that not to, to minimize what you're saying, because what no, you're saying is I'm really the same. on point. I give this advice to myself. I, I know how to restore from the backups that I was using 18 months ago, the last time I did a restoration from one of my backups, but mm -hmm. software changes. I oh, don't yeah. know that I would know like exactly how I trust that I'm I, like, I'm a nerd. I've been in pressure scenarios before. I think I'd get through it. But the other nice thing about practicing that is you get to confirm that your backups are actually working. Yeah. So and trust me, I, I had a cluster fudge where some people were working down the road and they did some sort of electrical something that hit a huge surge that blew through my surge protectors and fried my computer. Yep. 
And trust me, go into a panic, even with all of your experience and your knowledge, you still go into a panic, especially when it happens to you. A hundred percent. But Dave, <laughs> I gotten two answers from you from that question. So I need one more. One more. We got upgrade, backup. Yeah, it would be what Wi-Fi system should I use for my home or my office would be the, really? the third most common thing that we get. Yeah, yeah. Mesh systems are well entrenched in the market now. Mm -hmm. They're very popular. And for most homes, they are the right thing. But Wi-Fi is invisible, right? Like yeah. By nature, I can't see it. I, maybe there's a human who can see it, but it, it ain't me. And so there's a lot of question about what's the best way to set this up. Here's what I'm doing. What type of system should, and I have a default answer for that, okay. but it's not applicable in all scenarios because again, we don't know what we don't know. But my default answer is go get a set of three Eero devices yep. and just use those because for 95% of the scenarios and 95% of the people out there, that's going to work the best for you. Eero is a mesh system. It was developed by a scrappy little startup out in Silicon Valley years ago, they were acquired by Amazon, but they still basically run as a scrappy little startup. And they are one of the few mesh systems that is cloud managed. And I share that in case you see that as a positive or a negative. Some people don't like the idea of the Eero business being able to see details about your Wi-Fi network at all times. And I get that. The reason I like a cloud managed system is because they see what happens on everyone's Wi-Fi networks at all times. And they learn from that. They learn that, ah, when there's this particular iPhone on this type of network, when it moves from one access point to another, here's the best way to transition that and to roam that around. But this Android phone acts very differently. And so we're going to treat that differently. And they have millions of data points that you get the benefit of because it's cloud managed. You don't get that in the same way with something like a TP-Link Deco, which is one of my other favorites, but it's locally managed. So you don't get the same sort of AI is the term that we use now, right. but it would be machine learning or whatever. But hold on, I'm going to pause you there for a second. Sure. I think a concern might be for the listener, is Amazon doing what Google does or allegedly does and quote unquote, pry and peer into our data because we have confidential information that we want to make sure prying eyes can't see. It's a fair question. And the way that I answer that for myself, and this is definitely a rationalization, but it is based in logic, is when Eero was a scrappy startup, if right. they made a mistake and caused the data that they had collected from 10,000 customers to be leaked into the wild, that would have been bad. But we probably would have given them a pass for it. Like, well, they're a scrappy little startup. They're doing all kinds of crazy things. They're, they're leading the charge in the market. They made a mistake. Fine. Some people would never use them again, for sure. But I think there's history has shown that those types of scenarios with those types of companies are often forgiven. Amazon cannot afford to have that kind of mistake made public at all. Right. Just like Apple, we've never heard of anyone having their photos lost by iCloud Photo Library, right? Like I stored my photos in iCloud Photo Library and now they're gone forever. Apple hey, lost them. I've heard stories like that. People have deleted their photos for sure. No, but I like, mean, I, I've heard where like 
through an upgrade or through a transfer. They've lost their photos, but they've never been lost from the Apple iCloud photo library servers. It's always been you deleted them from the server, right? And because if that happened, people would stop trust. It would take once, right? And I think the same is true with Amazon. If they leaked your data, it would take once. And I don't think they're, certainly they could be peering deep into our Mm -hmm. networks. But I really think that the level at which they go is what types of devices do you have and how is your Wi-Fi network operating? Because again, even if it just came out that Amazon, even if they hadn't leaked the data, but if it came out that they had all of this information about you and were tracking all the places you were visiting and all of that stuff, that would be equally as bad. I don't think they're doing it. I think they're anonymizing that data as quickly as they possibly can to avoid any potential leak like that just to make it impossible. Well, using an Eero or something like that, a cloud-based router, if you will, Yeah. would you use, say, a VPN at the same time? Not because of that, no. Okay. If, if you had a reason to use a VPN, a different reason to use a VPN, it, it works fine. I mean, it, it's okay. fine, but no, I really... Your ISP sees mm-hmm. far more than I think your your Wi-Fi provider would want to keep on you. They could see it all. But again, there's no business benefit for them unless they're selling your data out the back door. But, but again, we would have heard about that. Like somebody would have been buying it. So God forbid. Uh, right? Um, like <laughs> God forbid. Most V, I, like, but VPN providers, uh, other than the, the handful that actually don't do, that is their business model, right? right? The lower tier VPN providers, they are collecting data about you to sell. That's how they make money. So and it's ironic. Sort of an aside, I was at a conference weeks ago in Fort Worth, Dallas, and there was a CLE, continuing legal education class that I was attending. And the lawyer goes up there and he's like, so how many of you are online here at the conference for work or whatever? And everyone raises their hands. And then how many of you are using VPNs? I was like one of four out of several hundred. I mean, I'm like, I was gobsmacked. I was like, I could not believe you didn't have common sense to the same sense you wouldn't leave your computer behind in the conference room, say during breaks or overnight. You don't surf, do work, et cetera, without a VPN using public Wi-Fi. I tend to agree. We are safer now than we were 10 years ago because most of the web, and when I say most, we're at like 99 point something percent is encrypted, right? You're visiting websites that are HTTPS instead of HTTP. And the worst that a network admin of the conference network could see or of the coffee shop network could see is where you are visiting. They can't see the data that's going back and forth because that's all encrypted. So I still use a VPN whenever I'm on public Wi-Fi because, but because almost because it's a force of habit, but for the folks that don't like it's, I recommend you do, but you're safer than you were a decade ago doing the same thing. And I think for the general public, that is true. But for lawyers, we have certain rules that we have to follow in particular, and that would be one of them. Yep. The, uh, yeah. Rule. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Bubble rule 1.1 comment eight. We need to be up to date on our technology. And when we use it, we need to use it smartly. We don't huh. have to be perfect about it, but we have to use it smartly. And I would think that using a VPN when you're in public doing work would be one of them. I but wonder that if I... that'd be a good name for the podcast, right? Like, you know, whatever it is, 1.1 comma eight, like, like this. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. Like, could you attract people that know? Like, yeah. yeah. So that what you're basically saying is I need to change my podcast. 
podcast. No, and... I think tech savvy lawyer is actually better than my really nerdy, like inside joke, inside baseball name. Cause you don't, yeah. yeah. That would be a legally nerdy name. Right. Yeah. And, okay. No, I, I get you. I get you. Yeah. I'm just being, yeah, I was being legally nerdy. Yeah. Right. Oh, no, no, exactly. I, get you. I, I was going to post this to you guys, but I'll ask you now. And, and you're welcome yeah. to bring this up on Mac Ecab. So you mentioned you had two 4K monitors. Well, first of all, if I may ask, who do you have? I have two up here in the studio. I have a ViewSonic in front mm -hmm. of me and a Monoprice monitor to the right of me. Oh. Downstairs, I have a the LG 5K $1,000 one because I was convinced I needed that. I really don't as my main monitor and then another ViewSonic kind of as my alternate monitor, which I keep to my right. I've got an XDR, the 6K. Yeah. I got that when that came out shortly after because I'm like, I'm really yeah. into this podcasting and whatnot. So that is my main monitor. And then I got two, as I'm pointing to my left yeah. and right, two, yeah, yeah. two. Well, when my hands are far out here, you can't see. I don't see them. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I've got two LG 4Ks. And every now and then, I think that they're beginning to go. So I'm, well, do I want to upgrade or replace them? And do I get a 4K or do I get a 5K? And if, well, hold on. the question, though, is if I was going to get a 5K, and this might be a better for a Mac Geek conversation for you guys. Yeah. If I was going to get a 5K, which one can I get without all of the extra stuff? I don't need a webcam. I don't need speakers. I just need a solid screen. It's it's hard to find 5K monitor. Like, there aren't many. It, there's, like, the one good one that I know of is the LG, and it's a thousand bucks or whatever. But even I, that has some stuff in it, doesn't it? Yes. I, I mean, yeah. I just don't need that crap. No, I would encourage you and anyone to look at a good quality. The Monoprice ones are, are great. They, I mean, they last. They What Monoprice does is they figure out what component they need to prioritize, and then they put cheap components around it. So the Monoprice one has good glass, a good display, and then a relatively cheap plastic sort of case and stand. But once you put it on your desk, it's fine, you know, unless you care about the aesthetics of it, and then you probably wouldn't like it. But the Monoprice ones are good. The ViewSonic ones that I've tried are generally a notch up on the glass. And I have a ViewSonic next to an LG 5K screen. Right, right. And I don't mind it. Like, it's fine. So I can go back and forth between them and I'm okay. So, and I replaced the iMac 5K with a 4K ViewSonic 27-inch that's in front of me now. And it was different because every monitor has slightly different colors and but it does its own thing. But it's great. I don't get, my vision's fine. Like, Well, I, as a lawyer, I'm doing a lot of reading and yeah. I could really see the difference on that. Of course, this is a 6K yep. versus, of course, 4K. And I'm just trying to figure that one out. Dave, let's move on to the second question. Apple computers still have somewhat of an aura of, of made for creative people and not professionals. What are your top three reasons any professional, including us lawyers, would want to switch from PC to Mac? That's a good question. Over the years, I had, as I, especially as I was doing consulting for people, I mostly consulted for people who were on Windows machines, mm -hmm. although I did both. And I often had people ask me, especially folks for whom I had been consulting for a while, why haven't you tried to convince me to switch to the Mac? And I would always say, well, I'm not here here to get you to use your computer the way I use my computer. I'm here to help you use your computer the way you use your computer. And if there was some obvious thing that they were doing that I knew would be better on a Mac, I would say so. 
but I was not there as an evangelist for right. the Apple, right? I was there to serve the customer. And, I, and to that end, even if I gave them advice, I would always then just stop and listen. And if they chose to take a path that was not the one I advised, then I would help them with the path that they chose, right? So, which I think is a, a good practice to follow. Right, but right now I'm inviting you to be the evangelist. I understand. So. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Well, it's to say that I don't have like... I generally don't evangelize the Mac. There are things about the Mac that I like, mm -hmm. and obviously there's lots of people out there in the same boat. One thing that is great about the Mac is how well it integrates with all your other Apple devices, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if you've got an iPhone, if you've got an Apple Watch, if you've got an iPad, and I know a lot of attorneys are using iPads for reading and keeping up with that sort of thing, as opposed to having just piles of books and all of that good stuff, then there is a, an argument to be made there that your computing life will be more cohesive and frictionless if you have a Mac as opposed to a Windows machine with your iPhone and your Which iPad is always sort of hysterical because I find plenty of people out in the wild who have like an iPhone or an iPad with them, yet they clearly have a Windows desktop or sorry, yeah. laptop. And yeah. like, why? And they're like, I don't know. Or it's, usually it's, this is what the boss gave me. So this is what I'm stuck using. Yeah. Back in, in and now we'll, we'll rewind several decades, but I did work for quite a few law offices and individual like solo lawyers and word perfect was a thing that was super <sighs> important back then. And obviously th there never was a Mac version of that. Are there still archives of things there, that are stuck a, in word perfect forever? There, there is a Mac version for word perfect. Okay. There, there wasn't. Is, and I believe there has all been right. for quite some time. Okay. All now right. I don't think it has all the bells and whistles of a Maybe Windows device. It. But going back to your question, yes, there are still WordPerfect users and who have old files and old versions of WordPerfect that they're afraid to upgrade because they're afraid of losing whatever dent to it. And that's yeah. kind of sad that you can't upgrade your computer or upgrade your software because if you do, you might lose out on certain features. Yep. Yeah. It happens all the time. I didn't mean to tangentialize us, but it, it oh. got to thinking about like specifically for attorneys, what would those friction points be? And and that could be one of them, right? If if your whole practice is is reliant on the way the Windows version of WordPerfect works or worked, mm -hmm. then that would be I'm always looking for when someone when I'm working with someone, I'm always looking for the best path for them. And right. so but yes, that was so rewinding a little bit farther, the friction free cohesiveness that you get with right. all with an Apple ecosystem is a wonderful thing. Maybe the second one would be the compatibility with your clients. I mean, many people these days are using Macs right. and I don't know how much of a difference that's going to make these days. Yeah. I don't think it does. I, I really I don't. Because yeah. the way the software and everything is web-based now, that it doesn't matter if you're on a Windows or a Mac device. Yeah, I've never had a problem with a client because they had a Windows machine and I'm on a Mac. If I want to share a file, I'll do it by CD, jump drive. I mean, a large yeah, data yeah. file. Yeah, or huge. I'll send it by Dropbox, something Fair. secure. And Fair. it doesn't matter how they get it. Now, going back to your first answer, I was thinking about Mac OS just recently upgraded, Sonoma, and what I wasn't happy with was the growing pains that I have had to deal with some software because Mac Mail has boxed out all of the third-party add-ons. 
Preach on, my brother. Yes. And it has really monkeyed up some of my workflows. And I'm really pissed about that because it's like, I have better things to do because of what Apple did. And I get it that they're making their mail more secure, but they did it in such a way that, quite frankly, a lot of these third-party add-ons for your mail or other software that uses or can integrate with Apple Mail suddenly can't, or you got to do a couple extra steps. And that's been driving nuts. This was the primary reason that I hesitated from updating to Sonoma, was that like my... I live and die, my work life mm-hmm. lives and dies by my email, right? And mm-hmm. so I have to have an efficient process. And even the idea of changing that process, really, it's one of the biggest shifts that I've had to endure in my work life in a very long time in terms of just the way that I my productivity goes. And so I wound up moving away from mail. I've moved to Thunderbird for now. And if I may ask, what third-party software do you like to use that integrates with your mail? Great question. So I primarily was using a package of plugins from a company called Small Cube. They called yep. it MailSuite. I really didn't use much of what MailSuite mm-hmm. was capable of, but I there were a couple things. One was the something they call SigPro or Signature Profiler. Okay. I have I run several different businesses here. Mm-hmm. I have one email account into which all of my business email comes. Okay. And I have aliases. So if I have a one for Mac Geek Gab, because that's one show I do. I have one for Business Brain. That's another show I do. And when I reply from these emails, I want it to pick up the correct signature. Right. Mail doesn't work that way. It that that is a fundamental weakness of mail is it won't pick up a different signature for aliases. It'll pick up a different signature for an account, but when they all come into one account, then you just get one automatic signature. You can choose. Right. But Pro let me add that functionality of of having different signatures per alias. It act on, which is another yep. part of that. I moved over to Mail Mail Butler. Yes. Because there was a couple versions back that Mail Act on was not catching up with the new OS. And I just, when a third party function stops that you rely on, on a daily, hourly, yeah. by minute basis, that suddenly stops working, we give it a little time. I, I, I was about to quit Mail Butler, but I think they finally figured it out. Uh, Mail, Mail Butler is the one, really the one plugin, the one extension that currently mm-hmm. works in macOS Sonoma. It doesn't do the things I need it to do. Not because they're unwilling, but because, as you said, Apple has sort of boxed out only mm-hmm. specific functions that are capable of, of being extended, and the signatures aren't yet one of them. I used Mail Act on for two things. One was filing mail. I have keyboard shortcuts that right. I had applied to Mail Act on so that when I would do a certain keyboard shortcut, it would take the selected message or messages mm-hmm. and put it in a specific mailbox. Solved that problem with Keyboard Maestro and some like tricky user interface hacking. It works, but it was a little bit, it's a little janky, but it- Have but you tried Better to Touch Tool? No, but I'm sure that would work too. I, I just, I'm a Keyboard Maestro user and, okay. and so I just went that route. But yes, you're right. Better Touch Tool would also do the same do, kind of thing. Do you have a setup account? Yes. Okay, because that comes free. It, and it's, and yeah, just yeah. so you know, the setup on that was very simple, but I think we're digressing a little bit. Well, um, well we are, but I wound up moving to Thunder Thunderbird, okay. which is the open source yep. mail client from the people, the Mozilla Foundation who makes right. Firefox and all that. 
And I will tell you, it was two days of headache getting myself there. And now that I'm there, I'm fairly happy. It's not what I'm used to based on the last 20 years. (laughs) So I'm still fighting a little bit of change resistance. But productivity-wise, functionally, Thunderbird has been really great. Mail clients are an interesting beast. Unless you're using Apple's Mail Thunderbird, maybe Outlook, although it's far too integrated with other things. I, it doesn't I, work I for my like brain. I don't Outlook at all. Um, yeah. and, I, and I'm using it for the, the blog and I, I can't stand it. But all of the other sort of third-party mail clients are essentially written from the perspective of I am a developer of a mail client and here's the mail client I wish I had, so mm-hmm. I made it. Mm-hmm. And that's great. But in terms of features, it and this is just a weird breed of, of human that makes male clients. And I don't say weird to be bad. I just mean that it's, you know, it's different. It's quirky. It's different. Right. If you suggest, and, I, and I've done this, and I can say this, you know, it's anecdotal, but it's pretty widespread for me. Suggest a feature to the developer of a third-party male client. If they can't see a world where they would use that feature, you're never going to get that feature. It's just how it is. <laughs> so I was happy to find Thunderbird, obviously, because that's built by a team. And so it, it like th- there are many features that any one developer of that software does not use, and they're okay with it. It's part and parcel of how it works, just like Apple Mail. It's built for general people, not a specific person. And, you know, I'm going to do something a little unusual before we get to your third answer on this. Okay. And I'm going to do a shout out for you that if the listener wants to hear more insight about using Macs and its Apple software and products, I would encourage you to listen to Mac Geek App between Dave Hamilton and Pilot Pete, because the description that Dave just gave was almost very similar to the one that he gave, I know, a couple episodes ago that I listened to. And I say that like, oh, Dave's just rehashing stuff. No, Dave is providing right now listeners who probably aren't usually familiar with programs, podcasts like Mac Geek And I would really encourage you to listen to his podcast because one of the things I like about his podcast that he does with Pete is that it's a lot of quick, rapid fire Mac tips and tricks. And they answer questions live on the air. They come out with their own reviews on certain products. And it's just a very friendly, open space to listen to and learn. Um, I started, just as a little background, I started listening to podcasts probably about 10 years ago. And I started off with Mac Power Users, which is a very good podcast if you want to go do deep dives in particular products or how people are using their devices in certain areas. One of them is law. However, they do a lot more than just that. So if you want to do deep dives, check out David Sparks and Steve Hackett at Mac Power Users. If you want to do rapid, quick tips and tricks, check out Dave Hamilton and Pilot Pete over at Mac Geek App. Thank you for saying that. Uh, Absolutely. You you warm my heart by saying by your perspective of Macikab being an open environment where everyone can learn yes. that like thank you for saying I know I, I didn't script that for you but right. really no, this is completely spontaneous and I, yeah. I interrupted your answer yeah. which I appreciate very much and again you just I learned by osmosis now mind you I've been learning for the past 40 years when I first programmed on a, a TRS 80 Coco color computer yeah. those I, I, I do do basic. And from there, when I went to college, I learned Fortran and then just, I kind of just build on that. David, let's get into uh, your third answer, if I may. 
I, I would say, given that most people who are going to buy a computer are l very likely to buy a laptop these days, my third answer, which could arguably be my first or most important answer to that question, is going to be battery life. With the Apple Silicon chips now, you get so much battery life. To be able, the, the idea of being able to run a full day on your laptop with a single charge is something we've been so many times over the years that we no longer believe it when we hear it because mm -hmm. we know, well, not the way I run my day. If you're maybe using your laptop with the screen off, it might work all day. Those sorts of things. No, I, I, that was true. I, I don't mean to be dismissive of that. When we say now you can use these Apple Silicon laptops all day, it's the way we all use our laptops all day. It's really amazing. And so the, the battery life of, of Apple Silicon would be a, a pretty big argument that I would make for well, attorneys and anybody. Yeah. Well, just to pull on that for a second, I was at several conferences last month and I had some all day sessions and I was able to run my MacBook Pro with an M1 Max chip pretty much for about eight hours without any plug-in, completely on battery life. So that was actually very surprising. I think I had maybe 10% left. Now, mind you, I'm also a heavy user, so I'm sure. using a lot. And when you get onto Wi-Fi or if you're using your cell phone for a hotspot, it does drain the battery a bit faster. It's always going to happen. Of course, I wasn't, I don't think I was running video at the time, but you have that constant connection that lawyers need to have yeah. regardless of where they're at, even if they're on vacation, unfortunately. We yeah, won't no. go into that. Trust me, I, I suffer the same thing and I'm I, I'm I'm only an attorney when I play one on a podcast but no ah, well don't play an attorney on a podcast because you might get in trouble with the bar yeah it's fair I'm a good hack attorney that's about as far as it goes but before we go to the third question I'm going to ask you one more question sort of based on your last answer can you give us three reasons why purchasing a more expensive Mac versus an inexpensive Windows machine is justified? That's a good question. I, I think for most people, a Mac, especially a Mac that you buy today, but this was also true of yep. an Intel Mac that you bought 10 years ago, you're going it, to, it's not unreasonable to get eight to 10 years of usage of a Mac for most people. Now, I am not most people. I'm a nerd. Same. I, I, Same. Right. I want to have the latest tech. I want to be able to experience it. But in terms of, but you know, I keep a couple of computers, several computers it, it, that I use, and it's not uncommon for one of those to be a seven-year-old Mac that right. I am relying on for some fundamental thing. Like the, the machine that I podcast with was a five-year-old Mac, and I only replaced it because a lightning strike blew it up. We had one way too close to the house. Everything's protected from lightning here, right? except for the type of lightning that it, you can't protect against, right? And so I was like, well, it is five years old. Okay, I'm not going to try and fix this thing. I'm just going to, I'm going to get a new one. And I wound up doing that. But it was an Intel machine, and it was doing fine for the podcast, and I had no complaints about it whatsoever other than lightning blew it up and made the screen so it wouldn't work, and it was an iMac. So it's like, well, it's not worth putting a thousand bucks of a screen into it to salvage it. So, yeah. so we got longevity. One, yep. two more. Always like Ooh. answers in threes. I, I got that. Well, the data-based studies that have been done show mm -hmm. that Macs are actually less expensive to run over time right. than Windows machines, right? You will spend more upfront than you could on a Windows machine, but in terms of support and all of that, 
generally speaking, people spend less on a Mac once they're committed to the platform. So that would be the second one. I don't know that I, I'm not sure what the third reason would be. But quality of life. Again, that's very subjective, yeah, right? Like I, I will say when I do support for people on Windows, when I'm helping people who use mm -hmm. Windows computers, let me do it this way. 90% of that time is spent returning or 90% of those encounters are the with the intention of returning previously existing functionality to that computer, right? Where something broke, it used to work this way. Now, please help me get it to, so that it works the same way that it used to again. That's like 90% of them. When I'm helping people with Macs, 90% of the time, let's add functionality to this. It's working fine, but I want to be able to do more. And certainly it's not completely binary. There are times when Macs have problems and you got to solve to restore functionality. But in general, it's that. I kind of find this a little ironic after we just started complaining about the loss of functions through Mac mail. Yes. <laughs> Which, <laughs> like I said, it's not binary. <laughs> but, you know, going back to the, the your first two answers about the longevity and the value. One of the nice things about Apple is the Apple Care. And now that they've extended it to beyond three years, if you pay monthly for new devices. And it has been like a time where like the computer was about like it died or just about dead and something was wrong with it. It was at end of the three year uh, warranty had it. It wasn't, it hadn't completely ended, but it was like getting really close. They replaced it. They completely replaced it with a new machine. So I got a brand new machine at the end of their three year cycle. And I'm not aware of any of the Windows makers who offer that kind of service. Yeah, I don't buy a lot of Windows machines anymore, so I can't right. speak to that. But certainly it's not widespread. You might be mm -hmm. able to find one. My guess, though, is if you find one that offers that type of service, you're probably going to be paying a premium out of the box for that computer. Right. Plus the service that you're going to add to it. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why I just really love my Apple machines. Yeah. Well, let's move on to our last question. What are your top three favorite productivity functions only on a Mac? This is a tough one because there is a lot of feature parity, but the first one would go back to kind of a previous answer with all the integration with all of your other Apple devices. There's something very powerful about being able to take a picture on my iPhone Mm -hmm. copy it to my iPhone's clipboard and paste it into a mail message or a document on my Mac. And as I describe this to you, if you've never done this, what I describe to you are exactly the steps I take. There is no middle step. I copy on my iPhone and I go to my Mac and I choose paste and that clipboard has come across. And it's the handoff feature, right? That's the handoff feature. Yeah, it, yeah it's part of continuity. I, I always get confused where the line is drawn between what <laughs> Apple calls handoff versus continuity because it all just sort of works. And similarly, if you are using an app on that, that exists on both the iPhone and the Mac, like Apple's Mail, for example, which, of course, mm -hmm. we have some issues with that. But drafts, uh, drafts would be a good one. Yep, drafts. But as you're typing a mail message on your phone, if you say, OK, wait, this is something I want a keyboard for. Go to your Mac and in the on the screen will be a little icon for mail to show you that it knows you have a mail message that you're drafting on your phone mm -hmm. and you click it and you just take over and continue drafting on your Mac. So that the and these are but a few little things there you can take your ipad and use it as a second monitor yep. for your laptop which if you're used to multiple monitors at your desk in your office you mm -hmm. get to a hotel room 
Yeah. I don't know about you, but when I, it doesn't matter how big my laptop screen is. I feel like I'm working, typing with mittens on if I can't see a second screen. It's just the way my brain works, right? I feel really like boxed in, but I can bring a second screen with me, which, and thankfully there's lots of those now, but if I forget, or I'm just not in a mode where I want to do that, I just pull out my iPad and put it next to it and boom, I'm good to go. Why would you bring a second screen if you already have your iPad with you? I mean, if you wanted a third screen, that's one thing. No, that's a fair question. I am an iPad mini person. Ah, okay. And and so that is the reason I want a larger screen than that. So if I know I'm going to be in a hotel room or an Mm -hmm. Airbnb for Mm -hmm. several days, I will pack one of these ViewSonic 15-inch portable screens. It's all powered by the laptop. Right. And they're lightweight. It basically takes up no room in my suitcase. I just throw it in, and then I have that in the hotel room. And the nice part is it also becomes my power dock because I plug power into that screen. I bring my laptop to the conference or wherever I am during the day. I get back. I plug one cable into my computer and now it gets power. It's connected to the screen. It's connected if there's Ethernet or something that I need to whatever or my microphone on a dock. It's all right there. So do you know that product name? And I'm going to pull on that. If you can offer two other, we'll call that the first, two other travel tech tips in other words, of things that you should bring and or do. When yeah, the screen that I like, and you're getting this before I even talk about it on Mac Geek Gab because it's Ooh. new, Yep, is brand new from ViewSonic. It is a 4K OLED 15-inch screen. A 4K travel? It makes a difference. You want to go 4K. Like- no, I agree with you. I'm shocked because all of the other ones, I've been really like, yeah, I don't want to do that because it's only 1K. It Even though it's 15 inches, and in theory, a 1080p screen should look almost as good as a 4K screen, many of them do not. So Agreed. get the 4K. This one is certainly the top of the line as far as I'm concerned. It's $499, so it's not inexpensive. Not but terribly not expensive. Bad. No, it's not bad. Right. But I'll offer a recommendation for a very good second best. But yeah, this one is, it's the VX 1655 4K OLED. It is absolutely gorgeous. In addition to being gorgeous in terms of the screen, it is so well engineered. The stand for it folds out behind the monitor. So you don't have anything taking up space in front of it once you fold it out. And the stand isn't the same width as the monitor which means that when you're plugging cables into the back of it, they're not sticking out the edges. You're plugging things in and they all sort of hide behind the monitor, meaning you can put it right up against your laptop, which not only is nice from just a visual sort of continuity thing, but also if you've got small desk space, every few inches counts. So oh, yeah. that's- No, 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 I'm looking this up while we're talking. Yep. I'm really curious about this. It's amazing. I just got it last week and this one's going to be my travel monitor for sure. Prior to this, however. Are you sure about that? The the VX1655? Yeah, did I say it wrong? Well, I'm seeing this as a a 1080p. Hang on. Maybe it doesn't exist yet. I have it. Yeah. Oh, no, I see it. I see it. There's the 15.64K OLED. That's Um, the one. Got to be it. Yeah, that I will have to look at that uh, in more detail off recording, as they say. Yeah, if you got to get the, the, the show notes right, there are several models of the VX 1655. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yep. You got to get the one that's the 4K OLED model. Correct. Yep. yep. Oh, and I got to warn you, I see this now, mind you, we're recording in November yep. and I'm looking at Amazon right now and they're selling it at 10% off at 449. Woo, that's so, great. 
Yeah, I see it. Go return and get your 50 bucks. Well, I got this one from ViewSonic, so it's fine. It's a review unit. So, oh, uh, okay. So it cost me nothing, but thank you for that heads up. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to work with ViewSonic, I guess, and and get my own review monitor. And then I will. Two two more tips on travel tech. What should you bring? What should you do? Well, I want to do 1.5 because there is the KYY 15.6 inch 4K, not OLED screen for 230. 39 bucks on Amazon and it is really good. It's not quite as good as the the OLED screen, mm-hmm. but for less than half the price, it's good. So, if you're not committed to spending the the money for the OLED screen, go get this one and and you'll be great. That looks like a gorgeous machine and I'll have both of that in the show notes and just so you know, this episode won't be coming out for a little while. So, I think your next Mackie Gab will beat us out for sure. We'll beat, beat it out the door. Yeah, probably. Yeah, we'll see if when, we'll see when I finally get to it. Two more. Still going to pull two more for travel tech tips. So my second one would be the Anchor Nano Charging Station. It's Anchor's product names get very similar to one another. So this is the 6-in-1 67-watt, and it looks like a little square puck even though pucks are round. It has a power cord that comes off the back of it that you would plug into the wall wherever you are. And then it has two three-prong AC outlets, the top of it, and four USB-C ports along the front of it. Two are USB-C, two are USB-A. And what's awesome about this thing is that it is flat, maybe a centimeter thick. You would think, well, how can I plug in safely a three-pronged outlet into something that's only a centimeter deep? What's amazing is you start to plug it in and the outlet rises up out of the device so that it is all shielded and covered and you can plug in all the things you need into this one thing and it's lightweight and flat and travels really well. Can you clarify one thing for me? Absolutely. Does this provide a surge protection? Probably not. Not I was seeing it. And, yeah. and no offense to you, I don't like using a device that's not connected to a surge protector. So here's something interesting. This is a good question. I've, um, as someone who suffers lightning damage often and especially mm-hmm. has done so recently, I understand this. With laptops, I have found that to be less of an issue because your power supply for the laptop, a.k.a. this device, is the thing that will be your surge protector. Like, it will sacrifice itself and not your laptop because your laptop doesn't have a power supply in it, right? It's the power supply that's going to get fried if there is a power-based surge, right? I will also say this. I've suffered a lot of lightning issues here. I don't think any of them have been from AC power. They've all been from DC power, Ethernet plugged in, coax plugged in, phone jacks plugged in. That's what tends to fry things. Forgive my paranoia. No, it's good to be paranoid, but I will share looking at the spec sheet for the device I I mentioned, it says that it has a 24-month warranty on itself and $200,000 worth of connected equipment warranty. So whether it doesn't say that it has a surge protector in it, but my guess is that it does because otherwise Anchor wouldn't be putting $200,000 worth of equipment insurance on this thing. So one thing I'm confused about or concerned about, I should say, is, all right, fine, it protects your product for 
two years, but does that mean you need to get a new anchor charging station or like clarify. buy a new one? No, let me Sorry. clarify this. It is a lifetime $200,000 connected equipment warranty. So there is a product warranty for okay. manufacturer's defects. Okay. If the ports stop working or something, you got 24 months to send it back to Anchor and they'll help you out. After that, though, there is the connected equipment warranty is quote unquote lifetime, which is defined as the lifetime of the product. So, yeah, okay. So you're, yeah, so you are covered there. Yeah, you could use it for far more than two years. Gotcha. So, Dave, concerns I have is about the lifetime of the product. I mean, if after two years, which is the 24 month product warranty, do you have to buy another one to make sure you get the same protection? Okay. All right. For number three, it's going to be a portable battery. Okay. And th there are a lot of different forms that portable batteries take. So we will start with the functions that I think are really important. And we'll talk about the, the, a couple of different forms that these can come in. Okay. I know we say that our laptops last all day on a battery and that's right. They do. However, sometimes you need a little more then it's going to last you. And because our laptops now are powered by USB-C power delivery, mm -hmm. it means that we can have a battery in our bag that can provide extra juice for our laptops. So having something with 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 milliamps that yep. you can use to juice up your laptop in a pinch is a wonderful thing. The nice part is that means it can also charge your phone. It can yep. charge your watch. And I wind up often using a battery, a power bank, whatever you want to call it, on the bedside table of my hotel when there is no convenient plug to plug my charger into for my phone. I will bring the battery over instead of like having to move. You gotta, you get to the hotel, it's yeah. midnight. You got to move the bed out of the way to get the charger plugged in behind. I don't want to be doing furniture moving before I go to sleep after I've traveled all day. Right. So I just throw the battery on the bedside table. I plug my phone into the battery, charge my sense. phone overnight. I can have my noise machine app running because I, I'm okay. I've, I know I've got plenty of juice. And then the next day I bring it over to the desk where there is convenient power and I charge up the battery so that it's ready for the next night. <laughs> And it all, especially if I'm using one of these 20,000 milliamp hour batteries, the phone doesn't draw that much from it. I usually can take the battery with me during the day and still feel like I've got enough of a backup. So the form in which these batteries come, like I said, is plentiful and varied right. and you can pick the, the one that you want. I like having the ones that are about the size of an iPhone. They kind of yep. look like they're flat and, and where they sit the best I find is at the very bottom of the sort of big compartment of my backpack. I put them flat in the bottom there. I don't even notice them. The weight sits really well. They're not all that heavy anymore right. to begin with, but when you put it down that way, it's it the weight pulls in the right way. I don't even think about it. And the batteries that I've used hold a charge for a very long time. So I can be months between when I've traveled and I forget to recharge it because of course right. I do. And then it's just in there. I quickly look at it. Oh, yep. It's still got four out of four bars. Let's go. So I like the Anchor stuff, A-N-K-E-R. I, I mentioned that yeah. brand first. Yeah. I yeah. have an Anchor. I think it's a, an old 20 milliamp bar that still works just fine. It's it's not heavy and I throw it in my bag and it's there for an emergency. Of course, you got to make sure you yeah. Wires, although a lot of the new stuff that's coming out, I think have built in a place for your watch. Sometimes even have built in wires, and of course, some do the the wireless chi. Yeah, chi charging. The chi is great. I one of my favorite things is the Anchor Mag Go with a pop socket on it, and this is a battery that will a MagSafe battery that sticks to your phone. 
mm -hmm. and has a pop socket on the back of that. So you have the ability to hold your phone with one hand even while it's charging. And it's super convenient. It is not efficient. This is not a ding on that particular model. MagSafe charging is not efficient, meaning you're losing generally about 50% of the power that's being provided is lost to heat. In right. it just in the transfer. That's not that big of a deal when you're plugged into the wall, but when you have limited power stored in a battery mm -hmm. and you are giving away half of that yeah. to heat, if the convenience factor is worth it, then great. But just be aware that you're wasting it, for lack of a better I term. I think I have that. that. I have that model yeah. without the pop socket. Yeah. I'm a big um, fan of pop sockets, especially MagSafe pop sockets. So I can just take them on and off my phone. It's a whole other, but that I, we could, I, we could get I, super I, nerdy I, about this. Well, I will then again, encourage listeners to check out Mac Geek Cab because I know that you and Pete talked about this issue just a couple weeks ago or a couple episodes yep. ago. And not that I'm complaining about talking about it now or anything, just that I haven't quite gotten into the pop socket group yet. Oh, there you go. It's okay, got that nice. on my phone. It's fantastic. It just like, and MagSafe. So it comes right off. Oh, okay. Okay. That I didn't know they made those with the, uh, with the Mag being MagSafe. Cause yeah. that was one of my questions is, well, how do you get it to charge on your Qi charger? If you got the pop socket on it, and no problem. Due to the hassles, but if it's MagSafe, that's even better. Yeah. Is there a particular company that makes those, or is it sort of like becoming it, universal now? It's becoming universal. The the one I'm showing you here is PopSocket brand. But the idea of having a grip on the back of your phone that you mm -hmm. can hold with one hand that connects with MagSafe, it's fairly universal. You can find them all over Amazon. I think we got answers from you for the bonus little question we had in there. So let's get the last two answers. From the question that remains is, what are your top three favorite productivity functions you can only do on a Mac? So two more. The second one, and again, I will couch this by saying I don't own and use a PC for my life. So mm -hmm. it's entirely likely that what I'm suggesting here, or perhaps even with the first thing that someone who uses a PC will say, well, I can do that by using X, which is great. All of these things, is, if your computing life is friction-free, amazing. Scripting, automation is mm -hmm. something that I employ a ton of on mm -hmm. the Mac. And I've not run into, when I start talking about this and I'm around Windows folks, even fellow nerds who are Windows folks, I get a lot of sort of deer in the headlights stuff. Like the, the whole idea of having Apple Script as something that's just part and parcel and core to the OS. Now shortcuts that are syncable and controllable across all your devices. That's not something that you get, at least not in that way on Windows, and maybe you don't get it at all. And then there's third-party apps like Keyboard Maestro or Better Touch Tool, like you mentioned, that offer their own versions of automation. Right. And I love Text Expander, which I use on a minute-by-minute -minute basis when I'm composing emails or even in some of my uh, drafting. There's certain phrases and, and words and quick things I just need to kind of quickly pull out. Also, the best one I have is there's a couple names that I always misspell. And if I type that word incorrectly, judgment with an E versus judgment without an E, it will just automatically fix it. Yes. This yeah. way. So I, oh, no, it's I, fantastic. I that is one of the things Apple's OS will do a lot of that before Text Expander even jumps in, right? Right. And I have now learned where those, those tipping points are for me because moving from using Apple Mail to using Thunderbird, I don't get the benefit 
of all of the OS right. specific corrections. Autocorrect is not in, embedded in Thunderbird like it is in Mac Mail. And that has been interesting. How much my fingers have come to rely on yeah. Apple's oh, that's autocorrect. That's the worst part is when it becomes muscle memory and then you got to completely update your muscle yeah. memory workflow. I miss spell words all the time mm -hmm. knowing that my computer is right. going to fix it. And now it doesn't because I'm not in that app. Yeah, it's a little different. Two things just to pull on this for just a second is one, Text Expander is now both on Mac and Windows. And I was in a prior podcast with Sarah Glassmeyer. She was talking about that there are some third party programs that will do some of the automation. I'm not sure if it's quite caught up with Apple's third party automations and even its own automations. But, you know, for instance, I use Hazel a lot, which is a background yeah. app that will do a lot of automation for you from filing documents to converting documents to renaming stuff, et cetera. And that was something, and it was new to her at the time. And I hadn't had a chance to look at the program she had suggested for Windows, but I, I know I will. I think it's beginning to start to catch up. I, it would make sense that it would. Right. Why, like, yeah. So, yeah, number three. I was hoping you would forget that we still had one number left because I don't no, know. No, I'm afraid. I, I, so in my prior life, I, I was an engineering uh, student. So I counting is kind of big on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I knew you wouldn't. But I was hoping you would. I understand. That's the beauty of hope is it doesn't need to be based in logic. Uh, I'm not sure. Actually, yeah, I do have one. And it's very specific to me. Okay. Recording audio on the Mac and routing audio, not just launch an app, start recording kind of thing, but... For my podcast setup, routing audio from one app to another and all of that, it's doable on Windows. There's that J Magic Jack software that, that sort of does all that. But it's not, as far as I know, and like this is something I dug into in the past couple of years because I actually thought if Apple was screwing something, there was one thing Apple was sort of screwing up and thankfully they fixed. But I was like, well, maybe I need to move to a Windows machine just as my recording and it was going to be much worse. So that part of it, but zooming out from my very specific need, mm -hmm. creating things, creating and editing video, creating and editing audio on the Mac really is kind of foundationally part of the OS and the experience. And therefore, even third-party apps tend to just work fairly smoothly with this, whereas that's not been my experience on Windows. Again, it, the gap in both directions is always closing, right? So, which is a good thing. What are your favorite recording studio tools? So I use an app called Audio Hijack from a company called Rogue Amoeba okay. to do my sort of, I'll say basic recording, but for my podcast, that's where I record. I also use an app called Logic, which is an Apple app. It's a falls into the category of DAW, Digital Audio Workstation. It's like a digital mixing desk, but also a digital recorder. It doesn't record exactly the way I need things recorded, but I use it. In fact, I'm using it right now as my mixer mm -hmm. to route all my audio through, and then it goes out from there to Audio Hijack to record. So those are two apps that I use. And then there's one, I keep mentioning all this routing that doesn't just happen automatically. There's an app called Loopback that sits in the background and pipes all this stuff together. And what's great is I can say, I want the audio from Zoom to go into Logic and it will allow me to make that happen. Whereas otherwise, that's a very difficult thing to make happen on either platform. So the fact that all of these tools can exist 
on top of Apple's core audio frameworks really is a game changer for me. I don't know. Is that going to be a game changer for attorneys? Well, it depends. If you need to route audio and do that sort of thing, then maybe. More and yeah. more attorneys are podcast. And yeah. also, of course, with Zoom conferences and mediations and hearings yeah. and depositions, especially, trust me, they are beginning to look into this. And it's one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why we're talking about it. But, but then I have to ask, what is your favorite podcast audio editor? Well, I don't edit my shows very much. Okay. So I don't do a lot of editing. So when I edit, the thing that I edit most frequently is my ad breaks, believe it or not. And I even the term break is wrong. I will, if you've listened to any of my shows, you will notice I never say, and now let's take a break because you as my listener are not taking a break in that moment. Right. You are still listening and I want you engaged. <laughs> like that's right, the right, whole right. point, right? But I pre-record all of my ads, even though it sounds like I read them into the show. I like my ad reads to be accurate and tight and respectful yep. of both what the advertiser's message needs to be, as well as my listener's time and, right. and attention and all of that. So I do edit my ads all the time, but that's just single track, one voice. I might talk for three minutes and edit it down to one and a half. So I use an app called Fission, which is just a very simple, easy audio editor. It shows me the waveform and I've learned how to see the things that I want to see and I'm very efficient with it. If I were editing a full length podcast with multiple people, I would use an app called Hinden. It really, it's purpose-built for editing podcasts. It is full-featured with the features that you would need. It makes things like dynamic compression fundamental to the workflows, meaning okay. you can get your levels balanced in a better way. And it makes editing with chapters and all of that stuff really easy. So Hindenburg is probably what I would use, I think. Excellent. Dave, I appreciate you being here today. Please tell us where people can find you. Yeah, you can find me. MacGeekab.com is a show that I do that we've mentioned several times here. That's a, a great way to find me. You can find me on X slash Twitter as Dave Hamilton. You can find me at Dave Hamilton on Instagram and threads and Blue Sky and Mastodon and all those places. And face I'm not at Dave Hamilton on Facebook, but search for Dave Hamilton. You'll find me. I'm Hamilton Dave on Facebook. So, yeah. <laughs> well, excellent, Dave. I appreciate you being here. And thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at michaeldj at the TechSavvyLawyer.page. Have a great day and happy luring.